Hey, you, do you like chips? Like, do you really like chips where to the point where you're eating chips so much that you look around and there's crumbs and you're like, who put those crumbs there? Did I put those crumbs there? And I'm and I'm here to tell you, yes, yes, you did, because you like chips. And if you like Cheetos, especially flaming Hot Cheetos, then you should tell people to subscribe to this channel, the Bitcoin podcast, because one out of a thousand, that's right. When we get a thousand subscribers, one of them is going to get a hundred bags of Cheetos, flaming hot Cheetos, baby. Think to yourself, how, how many Cheetos is that? And I'm here to tell you, it's like a million calories. If you ate it all, you would most definitely not be healthy, but we're going to send them to you because flaming hot Cheetos are amazing. So that's right. Share this around. Get us to a thousand subscribers. We'd like to have a thousand subscribers because if we had a thousand subscribers, that means one of those thousand subscribers is getting a hundred bags of flaming hot Cheetos. So, you know, do your thing, guys. Do that YouTube stuff. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Today, we have a special guest, Corey Doctorow. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Corey Petty. And Jesse's coming. D may join us later. We'll see if he gets around to it. Uh, Corey, thanks for coming back on the show. It's always a very wonderful pleasure to have you. You have uh, awesome takes on this space. Uh, more often than not, when I listen to you speak about it, you have nuanced and reasonable arguments as to uh, reasons behind not liking the technology or implications of the technology, which sure. is far better than the majority of the arguments I've heard before. So welcome well, back to the show. Thank you. That's very kind of you. I'm going to have to send you the, the paper I'm working on now on um, remote attestation and its promise and peril. And we can talk about that at some point, but we're still, still working it through internally with EFF, but we're, we're, uh, interested in, in what remote attestation means both for helping people uh, have more technological self-determination and also taking it away from them. So before we get into that, because that's actually something I, I now want to talk about since you mentioned it, but for those who don't know who you are, would you like to kind of give a quick introduction? Sure. I do a lot of different things. Uh, the, the primarily, I'm a science fiction novelist and an activist. So I've written some 20 books, mostly published by Macmillan's imprint Tor. Uh, and there are short stories and novels and uh, uh, young adult novels and middle grades graphic novels and um, picture books for six-year-olds and four-year-olds and uh, nonfiction book-length works and... Um, uh, everything in between. So a really wide variety of, of written work. And I maintain a, a daily 
open access blog at pluralistic.net that's um, mirrored to a bunch of different platforms like Twitter and Mastodon and um, um, Medium and so on, uh, as well as being available as a, a mailing list. And that's all surveillance-free, tracker-free, ad-free. Uh, and uh, I also, for nearly 20 years now, have worked with the Electronic Frontier Foundation in various kinds of activism roles. I was the European director for some years. These days, uh, I'm called a special advisor. Uh, and I have some academic appointments. I'm a, a MIT Media Lab a research affiliate, a visiting professor in the library school at UNC, and a visiting professor of computer science at the Open University in the UK. It's quite a bit of a... You do quite. You wear a lot of hats, but I think they're all in the name of a very similar vein. And I think uh, so. I'm going to botch a quote from uh, an author I enjoy, Orson Scott Card. He said the reason why he enjoys writing science fiction is that he doesn't have to make up motivation. Like he or like he gets to actually describe motivation in a lot of hmm. ways. Whereas like if you're just doing history, you, you you're not allowed to do that. You just have to kind of state the facts. What's hmm. what's the motivation behind a lot of the writing that you're trying to get through whenever you write all these things? Because there's a there's a similar vein here. Well, look, I you know, when you're doing um fiction, there is an element of that that is uh, making small a art. Uh, and I consider myself a working artist. And the first duty of a working artist is to make good art, right? And, and good art, in my view, and this is getting very philosophical, good art is a thing that takes an irreducible and numinous, complex, emotional feeling and tries to take it out of your head and put it into someone else's head through some intermediary medium, right? So, you know, the point of the point of a novel is not the pretense that an imaginary person ever lived or died, or that their non-consequential things are things you should care about. It's that in engaging in the, you know, pretense that this imaginary person's life matters, you might experience that complex, irreducible, emotional thing that the writer is trying to convey to you. Um, and so, you know, that's the first reason that I, I do th at least the fiction writing. Um, in terms of, you know, political or social projects that I'm involved with, uh, I am both uh, very excited about the liberatory power of network technology and its ability to give us more self-determination and to allow us to coordinate so that we can overcome very large-scale challenges like the climate emergency. And at the same time, I'm very frightened of the confiscatory power of technology to surveil and control us and to shift the, power, uh, the balance of power uh, ever more towards small groups of self-interested people who benefit by shifting um, value, self-determination, and quality of life from the ledger, uh, the side of the ledger that 99% of us live on to the side of the ledger where 1% of us live. And I think that to be a technology activist, you have to have both of those things going on, right? You have to, on the one hand, <clears throat> be very excited. And on the other hand, you have to be very frightened. Uh, otherwise, um, why bother? I have a thousand questions and conversations to talk about before we get before i dive into those jesse do you have anything that you want to bring no up? not yet i just want to i just want to listen i, I <laughs> I'm, I'm curious uh so i i'm approaching this interview from the perspective of i i do know that i guess primarily you are a science fiction writer but uh i don't know you know what your political views are your philosophical views are and so i'm just gonna I'm gonna take a backseat and just kind of listen to any questions Corey may have sounds good awesome so how do i want to take this First off, I guess I'm going to start with the whole Bitcoin conversation, and sure. then we'll, let, we'll let that take go wherever we want. Um, 
I listened to an interview you did recently. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if the interview was recent, but I recently listened to it. Interview you did with the um, epicenter Bitcoin. Oh about, yeah. And and they and you you started describing kind of the reasoning behind uh, or issues you had with Bitcoin, and that usually gets propagated into blockchain overall. Uh, mm-hmm. And a lot of the things have to do with proof of work or like mm-hmm. the inefficiencies of proof of work and um, better uses of that energy production. Yeah. There are other reasons. Would you like to maybe discuss some of that and we can walk through it? Sure. I mean, it's a it's it's a pretty complicated uh, subject. And it, and as you say, it's got multiple dimensions to it. So it's not just about the, the climate impact. And I would say, though, as a sidebar on the climate impact, I'm not uh convinced by arguments that say okay well we'll just switch uh mining to renewables because the the all that does is absorb the world's stock of renewables which leaves the rest of the world using fossil fuels uh so i'm i I think that that's um i think it's a cheat and i think people who make that argument should know better you know there are there may be better arguments but like uh you know uh, the fact that that we can just take all the world's solar capacity and use it to do distributed sudoku solving is not a good argument for uh like the environmental sustainability of 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 um distributed ledgers uh i am concerned uh about it um so first of all i think that there's like an ideological lurking ideological idea within uh what you could call bitcoinism uh which is um uh, an idea of uh, money being uh, endogenous to people as opposed to exogenous to states. I think that's an ahistorical account. Like I'm a modern monetary theory person. I think that um, the historic record's actually pretty good on this, that like coin money and other forms of money were always fiat, uh, that uh, the the reason that we have money is that uh, states needed to provision themselves. Specifically, you had um, conquering armies that needed food uh, when when they were occupying land. And so the state imposed a tax on farmers. And they said the tax could only be paid in the coin that was issued to the occupying soldiers. And so to get the coin, they had to sell food to the soldiers. And And today, the value of money, in my view, arises out of uh, the fact that you can only settle a tax liability with it. That's the primary source of value for money. It's not uh, the consensus belief in the value of money or what have you. Those are very fragile, they're brittle, uh, and they have a tendency to collapse. I think the stories that um, people who are inflation hawks tell themselves about inflation are historically wrong. You know, what happened in Weimar, what happened in Zimbabwe, they're not, or or Venezuela, are, are, are not inflation in the same way that, as as one theorist has said, a plane crash is not uh, losing a lot of altitude quickly, right? That that the collapse of a currency is not the same thing as a rise, a, a continuous rise in the value of currency. And when you look at what actually happened, the, the specific circumstances, for example, in Weimar, there's a pretty good paper on on that that came out this year from some um, MMT economists that actually went to primary historical sources and looked what actually happened, as opposed to what we hypothetically think might have happened. Um, you find that, that Weimar, that was not a case of excessive money production, that excessive money production followed from price rises. Right. The reason there was so much money being produced is that prices went up uh, and they, they, uh, firms could not conduct transactions because prices had become so high that the monetary supply was inadequate to it. Uh, I think that um, 
So, so let, let me tell me if I'm getting too deep into MMT because I know that this is this is all, like not a complete overlap to uh, Bitcoin uh, and um, the idea of distributed currencies. But that, like, I do think the story that Bitcoiners tell themselves about looming inflation, the fecklessness of the state, the illegitimacy of taxation, that these stories are um, like, they're not just ideologically suspect, but I think they're actually just factually untrue. Right. And so that that's, that's kind of where I land. So, you know, for example, um, the idea that, uh, that running the economy hot, spending into the economy is inflationary is, is wrong. What is true is that spending into the economy such that the public sector is bidding against the private sector can drive prices up, right? When when there's more bidders in the same auction, prices go up. Mm-hmm. And so if there's a thing the private sector wants and the public sector wants and the public sector tries to procure it, then the um, price might might go up. There are ways to make that price go down. Uh, so during the the Second World War, one of the ways that we presented prevented inflation for key material inputs for the war effort was by rationing them. So we just told the private sector it wasn't allowed to procure certain things. In the face of the climate emergency, we might ration some things. I think that that as between the hardship of rationing and the hardship of everything being on fire, that uh, the hardship of rationing is the lesser of those two evils. But there are other ways, less coercive ways to, of doing it. Um, and this is where the question of debt becomes really important. So household debt is is not like government debt in the same way that inflation is not like uh, uh, hyperinflation or run or, or currency collapse. Um, when a government uh, uh, does something, it spends money into existence. When it taxes us, it takes the money out of circulation. It, it annihilates the money. So money is ta- spent into existence, taxed out of existence. And what we think of as government debt is just a way of enticing people to park some of the money that they have instead of in dollars that don't generate interest in non-spendable dollars that do. So all a T-bill is, is a dollar bill that you're not allowed to spend and that the government will pay you rent on. Um, And the government doesn't have to issue those, but one of the ways that you can offset spending, right? If the government spends a bunch of money into the economy and doesn't want to have to bid against the private sector, it can entice the private sector to take some of that money that it's not going to tax out, the government's not going to tax out, and instead just voluntarily buy some unspendable dollars with it, uh, which are which we call treasury bills. And those unspendable dollars generate a, a small coupon every year, and the government can put off those dollars entering the stream of commerce for some set of years based on the yield, the 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 maturity period of the bond. And, you know, when when the year comes due, if the bonds are due in five years and five years comes along, the government can opt to either tax more heavily or spend more lightly, or depending on how much productive capacity is slack in the economy, not worry about doing either as that money enters the stream of commerce. So it's just a way of uh, deferring uh, aggregate demand. That's all a T-bill is. That's what government debt is, right? It's deferred aggregate demand. It doesn't have to be paid back in the sense that uh, you have to pay your credit card bill. Um, for one thing, the government makes dollars by typing zeros into a spreadsheet in the central bank, whereas you make dollars either by mining them, right, or by doing a day's work. Uh, and so you have a foundationally different relationship to a default on a dollar denominated debt than the people who make dollars in the same way that like Starbucks can't ever run out of, uh, gift cards, 
right? <laughs> or Apple can't run out of iTunes uh, uh, credit vouchers, right? Like the the these are not these are not scarce intrinsically. Now Starbucks could issue so many gift cards that they didn't have enough coffee beans to redeem them. Uh, which is the risk that the government runs, and Starbucks might try to entice you not to redeem some of those cards, right? They might uh, they might double the price of a coffee. They might um, uh, do what airlines do, which is to expire out some points every year, right? Which which is essentially taxing the the cards. They could they could make them leaky buckets, so every day the card is mm -hmm. worth less. Um, or, or they could default, right? Those are those are the things that that Starbucks could end up doing, right? They could just declare that they're not going to make good on those things, but but it's it's not like you and your credit card bill, because you don't get to say to Visa, uh, this month I have decided that my debt is going to be refactor restructured at a two to one ratio. So the thousand dollars I owe you is only five hundred. Because you're not a sovereign currency issuer, right? And and states are, and states have coercive power. So that's what I think money is, um, and I think that the ideology of um, of money being scarce and uh, government debt being like household debt drives us to do something that is uniquely counterproductive, which is to um, reduce government spending when we have low aggregate demand, right? When the economy is in a slump. Because one of the corollaries of the idea that governments spend money into existence and tax it back out of existence is that um, the money that is still in circulation at the end of the year is the government is the money that the government didn't tax away. So in other words, when governments run surpluses, it means they taxed more money out of the economy that they spent into it. When governments run deficits, it means that they left some money in the economy for the private sector to use. When you reduce the amount of government spending during periods of low aggregate demand, you reduce the amount of available money right? Like just the number of dollars in circulations goes mm -hmm. down and you have to get these funny money dollars, which are bank dollars, which the banks issue as government's fiscal agents. And uh, unlike say a bond, which is um, a dollar that you are paid to park, uh, a bank uh, loan is a dollar that you are charged to use. And bank shareholders like that, right? Like it is, to, you know, the, the economy requires a certain number of dollars in it to, 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 function, right? And so if you take the, the dollars that the government uh, would normally spend out of the economy, then those dollars end up coming from banks. And those banks make money every time those dollars are, are spent into existence, because banks also spend money into existence. They don't spend reserves, they don't spend fractional reserves, they just issue loans based on a set of criteria that are set for them based as uh, uh, based on their position as the, the government's fiscal agent. So banks, banks spend money into existence, and unlike the government money that's been into existence, which may or may not be offset by bonds, uh, but which doesn't um, enrich one sector of the economy at the expense of the rest of the economy, the finance economy at the expense of the rest of the economy, uh, that bank money actually does produce um, structural shifts in the distribution of assets and thus power within the, the wider economy because people who need to do stuff in the economy have to pay rent to banks for the money that they need to do it. And so this produces this widening inequality. It reduces the, the political power of the large number of people. It enhances the political power of a small number of people whose assets are not coterminal with the rest of ours. Um, and it's, um, uh, it, it, it slows down economic growth. It slows down recovery. 
because there isn't enough money in the economy to produce the aggregate demand that would restart production. And so that's kind of that's where I think money is. And that's why I think like inflation hawkishness in general, which is not universally, but frequently embodied in Bitcoinism is a problem. And then, you know, that gets that that's before we talk about whether uh, uh, an unstable asset class can be used as money, right? Um, when it, it's it yo-yos around and it um, uh, has, uh, it, that makes it a poor store of value and it makes it a poor unit of account and it makes a poor medium of exchange. Um, you know, the, the story about the uh, controversial Bitcoiner who is worth a billion dollars that that hit Slashdot the other day. I did, I'd never heard of him, but he just drowned. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first thing they noted was like a month ago, he was worth $2 billion and he didn't spend any money, right? He just, all of his assets were denominated in a highly volatile asset class. And um, like dollars are stable, right? Like one of the things, one of the things that we worry about when we talk about Zimbabwe or Weimar or Venezuela is like, look at how unstable that money was, right? Look at how hard it was to transact with that money because it was so unstable, uh, either going up or going down. So, you know, that's a, that's a problem. And then finally, like, and this is the one where I actually have a lot of sympathy for Bitcoiners. Uh, there's the question of financial secrecy and financial privacy. Uh, so financial secrecy, I think we can see from the Panama Papers and from the Paradise Papers and from the FinCEN Papers and from uh, the Swiss leaks and from, you know, like like 20 big tranches of leaks that have come out, including ones that reporters have been assassinated for reporting on. Financial secrecy is a mechanism to enable um, terrible corruption, terrible, violent, humanity-destroying corruption. But financial privacy is really important to democratic activity because money is power. And so uh, whether we're talking about the example everybody knows, which is WikiLeaks reporting out the Cablegate leaks and being financially embargoed by the monopoly tra- uh, transaction processors, which was clearly a way in which our democratic discourse was stifled by an establishment. Or, you know, there's lots of examples at the margins. I have a colleague at EFF who tells the story of when she worked on... Um, a uh, 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 project to undo West Virginia's prohibition on gay teachers. Uh, So being uh, gay and being a teacher could get you fired. And all the money uh, to support that project came in dollar bills stuffed in envelopes. Because if you were a teacher and you wrote a check and anyone ever saw your name on that check and who it went to, they'd fire you. And so clearly, like there's a case in this world for financial privacy, but figuring out how to enable financial privacy without enabling that kind of corrosive financial secrecy is not something I have an answer to. Actually, I have a novel that I finished over the pandemic that really grapples with that question called The Lost Cause. Yeah. I look forward to reading that. Yeah. So that's my rant. You asked. And I'm not, I don't think I'm going to argue with any of that, to be honest, because I might, in my, because I I approach this, I don't know, industry, ecosystem, technology, whatever you want to call it, from a very different perspective. And I agree with you that it's not good money. It's right. It's just, it's innately too volatile. It always will be because it's, because of its like asset distribution, the way it's, the way it's inflated into circulation and the rampant speculative nature of of how it's used right but like what i do like about it is it or at least like the original ideology uh what i would call like the core ideology of of why why the technology exists is to it's, it's an attempt to minimize the asymmetric power distribution of of value if you will uh it's how can we make it such that the assholes of the world can't gain enough power to influence everyone else 
because in, it, it, once you get to a certain group size, there will be assholes. And if they can do something, they will. And and the point is to try and make systems in such that they can never get to the point of gaining overwhelming power over individuals who can't do anything about it. And, and so like when Bitcoin got invented, it was like, all right, so how do we remove humans from the process of creating a digital scarcity? And proof of work was a very novel way of doing this in terms of like fair asset distribution and not requiring a human to check off that I gave someone else money or value, mm-hmm. some digital scarcity, right? And as long as you, and, and then following the rules was a relatively fair process because that distributed to Sudoku solving process. And it worked for a while. In my opinion, it's antiquated because we found better ways of doing that fair process. Uh, proof of like, and has anyone explained the differences between proof of work and proof of stake to you? Um, I have now done some readings. I believe it was, I believe it was you maybe who told me that I should go read more about proof of stake. I have since gone and read more about proof of stake. Uh, proof of stake seems to be that, uh, we trust rich people not to screw with us. (laughs) No, uh, no. Well, let me give you like, I guess like the most, this is the most generic definition I can come up with that gives you the, the, the overall concept of it. With proof of work systems, you're taking an external scare, an, an external resource, something of external value to the system, and then transforming it in some way, in, in some myriad of ways into digital scarcity, some digital value. And so with proof of work, you have ASICs and you know, energy required to use ASICs. The ASICs are the transformation process. The distribution of those things is a different story, but in any event, you're taking a very relatively fair resource, external resource, which is energy production, transforming it into uh, digital scarcity, and then moving that scarcity around in, in, in somewhat of a trustless way. If you think about proof of stake, you're actually taking an internal resource and putting it on chain, and then the dis- and then locking it up in such a way that the distribution of that resource is then used to create the same resource and so it's and, and so you have and it's it's not a panacea it doesn't fix everything it just gives you a different set of problems like for instance with proof of work because you're you're staking energy up front you can never use sticks as or like disincentives as a way to coerce the person to act in good faith you need overwhelming incentives to play by the rules uh so that you have a good Ration, like rational feeling that everyone's playing by the rules. So that's why I say people say it's very difficult to cheat Bitcoin because it's incredibly economically expensive to do so. And as as a even an irrational actor, you're going to make more money if you just play by the rules. But with proof of stake, you have the ability to take money away. So you can use different incentives and disincentives to try and create the mechanism design of creating rational actors that make the system work. And that's basically it. And then you have a myriad of ways of doing those two things. There's no like one way of doing proof of stake, locking things up and then taking it away using different Byzantine fault tolerant mechanisms along with stake for civil resistance to like make them play by the rules or proof of work and like, you know, the hard drive stuff like Chi is doing. Uh, like, so there's a, that's, that's the general difference. I take outside resources, I transform them into digital resource and I pass those around or I lock up internal resources and I, and I know who all those people are and I can take their money away if they don't play the rules, which I can prove because it's on chain. 
Right. That's, but to be on chain, like if, if I understand correctly, though, like the reason we trust that they have staked those assets is because there's still some proof of work going on somewhere, right? No. No. So the assets aren't it's entries all, the, in a proof of work ledger. Isn't that no. bootstrapping? No. Oh. No. They're, they're, so if you look at something like, so the, the one thing that was bootstrapped by proof of work and is still in the process of that is Ethereum 2. Okay. Uh, and so that, that gave you kind of what your initial distribution of. Right. of tokens. Which then mm -hmm. will then transfer over, and so that's a big, that's a very important point, right? What is that initial distribution? If that initial distribution is very, very skewed, which it, most things are incredibly skewed, mm -hmm. like this, this is the where I spent the majority of my work in the early days was actively looking at like value distributions on these on these chains and the ICOs and things like that, and then contrasting them with the narrative of what people are saying, or like look how inclusive we are and how beautifully uh, distributed things are. Don't get me wrong. It's better, mm -hmm. but it's still like, I don't know, 99% of the value is in 0.1% of the hands of the people. Sure. Uh, well, like, and if, if, if you can handle a quality, fair distribution of things, then you may end up with a system that doesn't have that situation, which you said, you're just trusting a bunch of rich people to follow the rules. Right. So isn't it, but, but um, in any, if it, to the extent that people are currently wealthy because of blockchain, it is speculative right it's because they 100%. speculated correctly and speculator markets are greater fool markets right so so you know generally speaking if you look closely at any speculator market what you find is a bunch of insiders who have benefited by locating suckers and convincing them to put real value into something that is valueless right pump and dump and you know i think a lot of people correctly deplore the icos for you know shit coins that are you know, useless and stupid. But when you look at the actual distribution of BTC, and you see that it's a bunch of early adopter insiders that had that had all the BTC and made all the money, and then everyone else is uh, a sucker who got in later, because they were they had FOMO and whatever, like, doesn't that look like a, a, a greater fool speculative pump and dump market, like all the way up and down, like even the respectable coin uh, corners of it? I mean, I, I think you're like gonna it. have you're gonna I think you're gonna have that issue regardless. Is like because it tries to be so inclusive and lowers the barrier of entry so much that anyone who wants to do that can. So they like and and the moment you start bringing value into these things, I mean, look at the look at the gross pervasiveness of what happened when we just allowed free information sharing on the internet, mm -hmm. right? Think about where we are today and what you rally against for the majority of your life and what you write about and how we misuse the distribution of information and how and how terribly that's kind of created the pervasiveness of social media and misinformation campaigns and so on and so forth. Now, are you going to say the Internet's bad? Like it's made a lot of quality, quality contributions to the to way people are able to live their lives and given them things that they could never have gotten beforehand. But there's a well, so the thing that I've been sure, I mean, and the thing that I've been willing to say since about 2001 and the collapse was that the entire internet was bootstrapped by tricking pension funds into uh, subsidizing HTML and Perl education for humanities majors, right? <laughs> like that's that's where the web came from, right? Um, it was uh, it was a redistribution of pension savings into into Perl education and O'Reilly books. 
Uh, and you know, like that is how we got here, right? Like, you know, it's kind of our original sin. And, and I guess in the sense of, uh, or in the, in, in the spirit of today, we're recording this, which is July the 1st, which is the canceled Canada day, you know, maybe we should stop pretending that, um, the things that we built weren't built on theft and trickery and, uh, and, you know, fraud and so on. You know, if, if Canada as a nation can confront the fact that it's built on stolen land and genocide, maybe we as the internet can confront <laughs> the fact that a bunch of people lied about uh, the potential value of selling pet, uh, pet food online or, you know, selling candy out of a taxi cab, which was an actual startup I was once to asked to, uh, to evaluate. Um, and, uh, and they did so in order to, um, you know, s- suck money out of uh, casino retirement world that had been set up itself as a way of, of annihilating the defined benefits pension and taking uh, normal people who weren't qualified to assess the stock market and forcing them to play the stock market as a hedge against um, dying uh, uh, in their dotage in poverty while eating cat food. Like we, that is sort of, you know, where, how we got here. Right. I mean, it's, it's, we, maybe we can build something more noble with it, but like, let's have some truth and reconciliation, which is the other thing that my novel about Bitcoiners and, and other, other things that we're confronting in our future is about, is about truth and reconciliation. I'm certainly interested in that. Like I, I think it's going to get grosser because we've, we're doing the same thing, but attaching value to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't wait for the projects where value isn't like the secondary reinforcer for entrance and participation to these sorts of projects. Like BitTorrent existed without necessarily needing a BitTorrent token, but yeah. after Tron, after Justin Sun bought right? it, it works. Yeah, on altruism. and that's what I'm that's saying. Like, there's, Nothing there, works there, on altruism. There, there's probably a better way. Uh, but we haven't gotten there. But like like Corey's saying, uh, you, you doctor, Doctor O. Uh, yeah, one? That, yeah, I know. I have to. I have to <laughs> specify. Time, you know, um, I, I think. I think that the start point will probably not be what we wish it were, but the mm-hmm. end, or at least the progression points, will be in a better place for towards. I don't know towards a better place in the end. I don't know. Well, that's I, why I remote. As, a, sorry, go, go ahead. I was just going to say that's what's interesting about remote attestation to me, uh, and but I, as I say, I have mixed feelings about it. I, I I'm excited by it, but I also have uh, very mixed feelings about what it does to the balance of power within uh, tech policy circles, and I think that it could go horribly, horribly wrong. Can you explain what you're what you're, what you're uh, sure. discussing with? Remote attestation. So, remote attestation, and I think we should distinguish between what remote attestation is today and what its advocates say it could be, uh, because there's always a lot of gap between the uh, notional. It's like it's like yeah, this machine is Turing complete, but it doesn't have an infinitely long punch tape in it, mm-hmm. and and in the same way. Um, remote attestation, as practiced today, looks a lot like what the theory says it could be, but isn't what the theory says it could be. So, in, in the kind of theoretical sort of shadow on Plato's wall, remote attestation involves having a secure coprocessor in your on your computer's main board that is um, tamper uh, evidence. So, and, yeah, yeah, a secure enclave something, uh, TPM. And it self-destructs if you try to remove it from the board unless you're really, really good. And even then, it, you know, if you uncap it, you can't recover the keys. And even if you recover the keys, you can't you know, use the keys to do something bad. Like the idea is to have a lot of defense in depth in a very small package 
that does a very small number of things so that you don't get the complexity that's the enemy of security. And what this secure coprocessor can do is observe the boot process on your computer. So it's, it's a second computer in your computer. It looks at, it, it, it signs a manifest of your bootloader and every component that you load and your kernel and your kernel extensions and so on. And, and um, then uh, you can uh, say to someone else, this is my operating environment. And you can say, this, my, this is my operating environment. And I am able to tell you what my operating environment is uh, and sign it with a key that I do that I don't control. That's controlled by this coprocessor that only can engage in a small number of primitives. And if you want to know for sure, so here's a bad example, a thing I don't like. Um, if you want to know for sure that my computer can't run an HDCP ripper because the OS won't let it before you send me a Netflix stream, I can prove that to you. But also, if you want to know for sure that my computer uh is correctly computing the parts of a distributed computation uh pro program that's being run by solid which is tim berners lee's discomp platform i can i can do that in fact i can even do things like you can send me some source and some input and i can uh, load the source into my uh, secure enclave into my coprocessor i can send it the input and then it will produce the output of that program and a signed hash of the source and the input. And I can send that to you. And you can know for a fact without having done without doing the compute work that that source ran was compiled and ran on that input and that this is the output that it produced. To the extent that you trust the the, the TPM vendor to be both competent and trustworthy that's, to not to betray us. Sure. And this is where I worry. Right. I, I worry. So I love the idea of disk disk comp. And I love the idea of like, there are so many applications for this that I love. Like this is the um, application of what Signal did with their cryptocurrency. Well, ostensibly. This is exactly right. So that's that's how it, this came up. Um, I know those folks. And so this is this is what got me thinking about it. Um, but, you know, imagine that you are a Syrian dissident and you don't know a lot about computers. And you want to communicate with a colleague who does know a lot about computers. And before you communicate with them, you want to make sure that there are no processes running again on your computer that might be used to compromise the two of you. So malware, lawful interception tools, whatever. And send a signed manifest of your operating environment to the third party, to your friend, your toolsmith, who can then validate that your operating environment is trustworthy enough to communicate with you, right? Uh, and that can happen 10 times a day. So if you ever get a malware implant, it can become revealed to you very quickly without you having to have any technical expertise. That's a really exciting idea. It actually really closely parallels something that Bunny Huang, who's the hacker who broke the Xbox and, and built lots of other amazing things, and uh, Ed Snowden prototyped uh, the thing called the introspection engine, which is um, a, a secondary uh, computer that lives on the back of a phone case. And it has a ribbon cable that goes inside the SIM slot and then connects to every point on your phone's main board through which network activity can pass. You had something and like it, this on attack surface. You're and this is in attack surface. That's right. So yeah, I put this in the book. Uh, and then it tells you, and then the, the, the phone case has got an OLED screen and it just tells you what network activity it sees. And so you're not asking the phone whether or not it's transmitting uh, network information you are asking a second computer that you trust more than your phone because it's 
an FPGA that you can probe with any kind of elect electronic probing tool, a commodity electronic prob probing tool to validate its configuration. And it's simple and the source is open so you can in inspect it and third parties can inspect it and so on. So um, I think that this is great, right? I think that there are so many cool applications for it. I also think it's terrifying because I think that it can be used in incredibly coercive ways. So say you're a Uyghur in Xinjiang and you would like to run the spyware that the Chinese government insists that you run inside a VM that feeds it false telemetry so that you don't end up in a concentration camp, right? Well, this could distinguish between the spyware running in a VM and the spyware running on the metal, right? That's that's its whole point is to tell you rely is to tell third parties reliably what your operating environment is in ways that you yourself can't spoil and that no user based process on the actual hard, you can't based on the actual change. yeah that's why I don't yeah. like it. I mean, I think like an extension of this, which I prefer, or maybe a combination of the two, would be something like zero knowledge proofs and the application of these things because these are open protocols that have been studied continue to be studied by the open by the, by the scientific community and can be run on open hardware which you don't have to trust the supply chain of the of the people who would like to make these things because we've we've shown that one there's purposeful backdoors in these things in the past or accidental backdoors in these past and in a lot of ways you can never see those things as they're yeah. being manipulated and that's a big problem but so if, but if you have an open so, protocol of cryptography you can run on anything you want and you have a stronger guarantee that those things aren't happening i mean maybe with a, with an application like signal like we know what the total supply is for the cryptocurrency that's on signal we don't know who has what the distribution is incredibly unknown so for all we know even though Moxie says he never got anything paid. He could have a very large distribution and no one could ever know about it. Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, I agree. That That is definitely one of the domains of the problems. I'm worried in a, in terms of power structure, uh, say say it works, right? Say say the um, a uh, remote attestation-based cryptocurrency works. It would be very efficient, right? You, just, you would never have to like compute the ledger twice. You don't right? need a blockchain. You just have to, yeah, you, you just, you just, well, you could, yeah, you just wouldn't need, um, you wouldn't need any kind of proof of work because your your locus of trust is in the um, hardware vendor. So one of the things we know, as you said, is that hardware vendors make mistakes. Uh, the, there's a vuln called Checkmate that affects eight generations of secure enclaves for iPhones, which are generally considered the most secure, publicly, mm -hmm. widely used uh, secure coprocessors in the world. By design, a secure coprocessor can't be field updated. Right. If it can be field updated, yeah. then it's not secure. Right. And so when the reason it's called Checkmate, in addition to it affecting eight versions of CHECKM8, the reason it, it's called Checkmate is because once you find the vuln and disclose it, it is a forever day bug. Right. Because you, yeah. you throw it like away. if that's, it's gone. yeah, if that enclave could be updated, it wouldn't be a secure enclave. And we know we EFF, we who work on digital civil liberties, and I should point out that this is not EFF's cryptocurrency position at all. EFF and I somewhat diverge on these issues, and I don't work on them with EFF. But but uh, the but but one um, uh, uh, thing that we know is that security researchers who discover defects in products often are prohibited from disclosing those defects through intimidation and coercion uh, that that 
people come after them with claims under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, under the under trade secrecy, under other cybersecurity laws, under Section 12.1 of the Digital Millennium Copyright, which is the anti-circumvention element, um, and so on and so on. And that it's a very dangerous business. And the other thing that we know is that there's no security and obscurity. And so if I discover a defect... Cryptocurrency, for that matter, a hundred percent, right? Yeah, this is or smart contracts software, are, for that matter, right? Like, yeah, and and but but also like smart contracts are a bug bounty with an unlimited payout, right? I mean, oh, that's they're, that, they're, the, the 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 number one metric for security uh, in smart contracts is how like time lock time value locked of a given of a given sure. process for a smart contract. That's the number one. It hasn't been exploited for this long up to this value. And that may mean that there's right. something there, just not worth that much yet. That's all you, that's right. all you can say. That's, that's, the, right. that's it. So what I worry about is right now, all the uh, like to a first approximation, everybody who loves Bitcoin stands up for security researchers. And what yep. I'm worried about is that we might end up in a world in which people who love Bitcoin are like, oh, shit, a trillion dollars worth of assets are about to be annihilated because some person found a buffer overrun in a secure enclave what i mean people do weird bad things when their own personal financial security is at stake people change views right and they change sides uh a lot right you know upton sinclair Your said it's worth yeah upton sinclair said it's impossible to explain something to someone when their paycheck depends on them not understanding it you know uh <laughs> i haven't heard that before but that's great and and, and you know like just yesterday, I, I wrote a, a post about um, the uh, the whip of the House. I've forgotten his name. Uh, the Democratic whip of the House, who two years ago was a co-sponsor of Medicare for All, then got a million dollars in campaign financing from pharma, and is now uh, um, helping to primary uh, a Democratic candidate who's going to take Marsha Fudge's seat, uh, who is a Medicare for All candidate. Right. And like he he has no explanation for why he doesn't like Medicare for all uh, that is credible. And the only credible explanation for why he doesn't like Medicare for all anymore is a million dollars. And so, you know, the, oh, it's Clyburn, it's James Clyburn. So that's that's that's, you know, the thing that I worry about is that right now you have a small number of people whose job it is to like care about this stuff full time. People like me. Right. Then you have a large cohort of people whose hearts are in the right place and who have better things to do with their time than follow the minutiae of these dumb cases and dumb laws. But periodically, when we say, hey, everybody, look at this terrible thing that's about to happen, they can be relied upon to, to like investigate it, know that we're not making it up and stand up. And then you know we repel the worst of this stuff. I think if that splits, if there's a group of people who are like, uh, it is irresponsible to disclose security defects without permission from a vendor, which is the the thing that that everybody who's on the wrong side of this says uh, that we'll lose. Like I really worry that we'll lose, uh, and then and then I worry that we're going to end up in this situation where everything is going to look a lot more like Uyghurs who can't uh, run VMs without being detected by a powerful adversary, and a lot less like a bank manager who who can prove to a robber that he can't open the safe, and so there's no reason to stick the gun in his face. Jesse, you got something? No, I mean, I, I, I see the arguments that are being made, and I, I, I think that they're valid. So I don't know. Oh, I'm just, I want to interject. Just, I want to allow you to, to come in because I can keep going. No, no, no I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying this. This, this is good. <laughs> 
you just you just explained a good portion of, of my career is trying like, the only way in my opinion to avoid that scenario is to have everything in the open as much as possible uh i mean the methods mm. in which things work and entice as best you can the, these people who are trying to find vulnerabilities and disclose them to do that in an ethical way to like to convert as many hackers onto the white side as much as you can and, hmm. and it, it, you can do that by I don't know. My, technology in general is a method for people to communicate more effectively. That's basically it. Like at the end of the day, we're all like, it, it, there's, 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 it's, it's, it ends up in meat space. Like that's it. And you're transacting information or value or the same thing for that matter. And what you should be doing is just making sure to that, that technology is made as efficiently as possible and to give people as many options to opt in to the technology that's right for the form of communication. And when you constrain it and you close it, then you're forcing a specific type of communication to a very, to a channel, which may make it wrong or coerced or manipulated. And that's what you see in today's society is that like everything that people understand is because like more often than not, that's what they're fed. And they don't even understand that that's the process of what they're being fed. And I hope, at least my my purpose for being in this ecosystem is to try and expand the options and make better technology to facilitate better communication. And you can't do that in a closed way because people have to have, like at the end of the day, like, I don't know, Bitcoin tried to swing a little too far with like everything, decentralize all the things, everything's decentralized, give all the power to the people. And they're not ready for it because you they, they grew up in a society that they can't remember their password and they can just say, forgot password to like here here's your private keys this is where all your money sits now take care of it and hmm. there, it's it, there's it's somewhere in the middle depending upon what you're doing but you should always have the option to move in the direction that you want to and the job now for most of these people is to figure out what's the right set of components to fit together to give people the the option and the education or intuition needed to make the option uh, or to make the decision when they want to that makes sense. So and I, I it does. I, I, like, I want to quibble a little. I want to quibble ahead. a little with that. I don't think there's anything wrong with it, but I think it's incomplete. And I think oh. that you're recapitulating one of the, um, the the pivotal moments in the debate about uh, technology and self determination, digital rights, which was the the open versus free split. Uh, and so, you know, as you know, in the early days of, of what we now call open source software, we, we exclusively called it free software. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a great name. It was like deliberately meant to be playfully ambiguous, but it also made it like actually confusing. Yeah, this is what that IP post talks about. But the thing about, about, um, free free software is that it stressed the idea of freedom or, or self-determination, right? That, that, it, that. The point wasn't merely to be transparent. The point was to be transparent in the service of maximizing self-determination. And there was a split. And the split was nominally because like normies were afraid of the word free because they thought that it meant that they couldn't make money from it. And so we decided we would call it open instead. Libra. But open was about... Hmm? Often you'll see like Libra in quotation or like in Libra, parentheses yeah. around it. Well, and you know, the th one thing about free software is it really caught on in places like 
Latin America, where you you actually have libre and gratis as two different words. So you know they they there they didn't have the ambiguity, right? They could just say you know software libre and as opposed to software gratis, and everyone know what you meant. But um, openness is about instrumental benefits, right? It's about like. Uh, you can check other people's work uh, with enough eyeballs. All bugs are shallow. People can't hide stuff from you and so on. But it doesn't attend to the freedom. So it doesn't attend to the power relationships. And so what happened as we as we reified openness as a virtue and downregulated freedom or self-determination as a goal, um, every time there was a juncture where we had to make a choice about about where the industry would go, where the movement would go, what the licenses would permit or prohibit, um, what arrangements we would allow. We uh, chose the one that gave us transparency and openness, even if that didn't give us freedom, right? And And if we had three options, one of which maximized freedom, one of which maximized openness, and one of which was closed, we would take the open one and not the free one. And what this produced is something that, um, and this is not my observation, this has been Mako Hill's observation from, from Libre Planet a couple of years ago, uh, which is that um, we now have open source for us and free software for the platforms. So we know what software Google is running. Like we can just download it from GitHub, right? Their whole tool chain's there, like what runs on their cloud, their OS, everything, it's all there. We can see it, we can make commits to it. They can approve them or not. Uh, you know, we can we can uh, modify it. We can build it on our own hardware and run it. But everything that we do requires that it loops through Google's cloud, mm-hmm. and we can't reconfigure their cloud. Which means that they have software freedom. They can reconfigure their cloud to their heart's content. But we have openness. One of the the key things that um, the kind that that remote attestation can give as a benefit is it can create these Ulysses pacts, which is when in behavioral economics, when you take something off the table in a moment of strength to guard against a moment of weakness in the future. So for example, um, uh, if you go on a diet, you might throw away all your Oreos, right? Uh, Because you know that like when you're hungry in the middle of the night, that you'll be hungry enough to eat the Oreos in the cupboard, but not hungry enough to get dressed and drive 15 miles to the all night grocery store. And so you throw away your Oreos and you're defending your weak self uh, with your strong self. And, you know, as a bank manager, you might configure your safe so that you yourself can't open it, right? So that it, that it's a timed safe or that it's opened by a remote party who has keys, but you don't have them. Or if you're playing something that is game-like, right? You might have, um, so, you know, if you're doing capabilities computer, you might nominate a uh, computing rather, you might nominate a trusted third party who has keys that can override the attestations of either of your computers and send what looks like a signed token to the other one in order to facilitate certain kinds of transactions that are outside the bounds of what the hardware allows, but not other ones. You trust that third party to make those calls. Or if you're playing esports, you might um, nominate a trusted third party to sign off on some configurations, but not others of your PCs. So you might say the following cheats are in and these cheats are out. You know, a cheat and a, the difference between a cheat and a mod is whether you like it, right? It's it's like the difference between a terrorist and a freedom fighter. There's not there's there is no like, um, you know. But there's no platonic wall on which we can perceive a cheat what as we agree on? from a mod. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's just rules, right? Um, so we 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 might like you know playing Texas Hold'em uh, is 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 uh, cheating if you're playing five card draw, right? It's but it's 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 not. Right? It's just a different game. It's just different variation on the rules. So all of those are Ulysses packs where you take something off the table uh, in the beginning, and so. Um, 
what I uh, I think that we talk about when we talk about how we keep the system free, how we lock it open, we have to talk not just about transparency. We have to talk about Ulysses Pacts. We have to talk about ways to weave in the four forces of code, law, norms, and markets, right? We have to make it unprofitable to cheat. We have to make it illegal to cheat. We have to make it socially unacceptable to cheat. We have to make it technically impossible to cheat. We have to get yeah, as close to those one. four ideals. That, that last one is what you is what you, in my opinion, is the is the effort of the quote unquote blockchain industry is to make experiments that are playing with the ability to make it impossible to cheat, or or make it so unlikely that people won't do it. Because I mean, well, you, you have that- you have games here. If it's an economic probability, then sure. people can outside those bounds but if it's like a crypto cryptographic impossibility then they can't right right well you know the phrase this uh this is not a place of honor right mm-hmm. have you heard have you ever seen that phrase that meme this is not a place of honor have i've seen, seen this? it do you know what it refers to no so it's a funny thing it's a thing that they proposed writing on catacombs where they store nuclear waste because they thought that someone in the future might stumble on it and go look it's the tomb of a pharaoh we oh, should explore oh. it <laughs> Right. So what they were trying to do was establish an intergenerational taboo. Right. So like one of the things that we have seen in uh, blockchain based cryptocurrencies like Ethereum is that sometimes the, the ringleaders will decide to violate a norm. Right. They'll roll back a transaction. They'll make the call that the technological failure can be remediated by uh, a, a social consensus. A, yeah, a consensus that is um, that violates a taboo, right? And so, like, I think that there's a case to be made for the long-term health of the cryptocurrency that says you must never violate that taboo, irrespective of how badly you've been cheated. And there's another case to be made for the short-term health of that cryptocurrency that says you won't have a long-term unless you violate the taboo, right? But but I would argue that within cryptocurrency land. There, it's not a purely technological question that there is this strong normative thing. And you know what? Everybody who sued Mt. Gox over having all their money stolen was not pursuing a technological remedy, right? People want a legal remedy as well. So I think that like even and and certainly the whole basis of of Bitcoinism is to harness markets as well as technology, right? It's to like, as you were saying, right? Um, uh, um, uh, God, I just blanked on the name of it. The thing the Pirate Bay used to distribute files that Bram made. BitTorrent. BitTorrent, thank you. Mm-hmm. BitTorrent didn't have a token associated with it. IPFS does, right? Like we, we, we are specifically playing with how we can use profitability as a lever to change oh, behavior. For sure. Right? Right. Like the whole ecosystem up until like so far, if you want to consider blockchain and like Nakamoto-based consensus or proof of stake. Yeah. Is, is, fundamental to having economics as a part of the security model. Sure. So what I would say is that we are already looking at those four forces, code, law, norms, and markets. This is Larry Lessig's framework. Code, law, norms, and markets as the four forces that determine uh, social outcomes. We're already looking at them. We're already we're already deploying all of them in service to uh, a, a robust system. But um, the goal should be to make... Um, cheating impossible on all those axes and that and that cheating impo- making cheating impossible is not the same as making cheating evident because making cheating evident 
only matters to the extent that you have um, well-balanced power relationships, right? There are lots of places in which cheating is evident and, permiss- and permitted because the people who cheat are, are rich and powerful. And so it's oh, only when you have- enterprise, enterprise blockchains is a good example of this. Sure. Yeah. Or, or, or tethers, right? Yeah. Right. Like, like yeah, I see it cheated there, but just change it because I don't care. Yeah. 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 So there's a lot. And, you know, this it's intrinsically corrosive, right, to have that kind of cheating because it it um, it, it makes us not trust our institutions. You know, like it's it's just but, it's but just bad. What's better? Well, what's better is to have uh, equality before the law and the rule of law. Right. Which what's you can only get. <laughs> well, so pluralism. Right. Like like I think that. What you see, if you look at kind of the sweep of um, rule of law respect within Western societies, is that uh, rule of law, uh, uh, widespread rule of law increases with a pluralistic distribution of wealth and therefore power. And even and in those moments in which the, the rule of law was unequally applied, the people who got the short end of the stick were the people who had the least power, right? That that so, for example, we have a kind of high watermark for rule of law for everyone except people of color, particularly black people in America after World War II. And after and for 30 years, the 30 years the French called it les 30 glorious, the, the 30 glorious years, right? The, and, and this is the moment in which people are held to account. We have the church commission, Nixon gets, you know, Nixon has to quit his job. Um, people who cheat get caught and they, they, they get into trouble. Um, executives uh, can't, um, use risible explanations to pay themselves a thousand X what their lowest paid employee is. Uh, we are not allowed to maintain the fiction that actual employees are independent contractors and deprive them of the protection under the law that they're entitled to. Like we have a, a high degree of lawfulness in that period. And the people who have the lowest protection from the law are black people who also have the least power, right? That, that like the two are, it's it sounds tautological, but I'm 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 asserting a causal relation that if you have no power, you, you can't assert your right to be protected by the law, and if you're not protected you no by the law, do you, so. you don't have power. Yeah, so I I would say that it's both, and so I would say that pluralism, um, which again I think uh, so far is not a thing Bitcoin has delivered on. Right, Bitcoin has delivered on winner take all. Uh, Bitcoin has delivered on participate if you want to, you may get rich off speculation. But the it's 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 a novel distribution mechanism. It's it's introduced concepts that I don't think have been around previous to Bitcoin, but it hasn't solved all the issues. Like the like, if you look at the distribution of power or Bitcoin across all of its holders, it's incredibly asymmetric. And on top of that, it's also synonymous, so it's probably even more asymmetric than it already is because some of those people are the same. Person. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that Bitcoin better. Because well, it's, 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 I think it's better because it it's it's no longer subject to a single district to a single jurisdiction, and it has it, it started the concept of a kind of human distribution of power that doesn't really care about a specific viewpoint or 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 global desire, like they, and there's arguments there for sure in terms of like who gets to participate based on mining and, and the balance of power between uh, how decisions are made within the, within that network. But it's trying to play. In my opinion, these things are experimenting with the concept mm-hmm. of m- minimizing this imbalance of power. 
based on a few dictating how money gets distributed. Because but, but it's still the few, the fewer the developers. In, in yeah, the, no, the, the, the imbalance of power in Bitcoin is mainly due because the people who started doing Bitcoin had no fucking clue that the money was going to be worth something sometime. They were technology mm-hmm. geeks who were who happened to be ideologically driven on the concept of of like libertarianism and things like that. And and like uh, uh, whoever's working on the kind of digital cash things like this who were interested mm-hmm. in this type of distributed consensus with a large overlap of libertarian ideals and Austrian economics. Mm-hmm. That's Don't changed. You think that we should- evaluate whether or not it's it's pluralistic based on the actual distribution as opposed to the 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 ideological goals like it does it if you actually add up the ledger does it look more or less pluralistic than well that's 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 i i I think that like i'm not a huge proponent of bitcoin anymore i think it was an important step in the direction of creating systems that are more equal that are more pluralistic and we'll eventually get to a point where we have something that works better than what we have today. And that it's important. And it may be that a lot of that bal- like imbalance of Bitcoin today is locked up funds that don't exist anymore because Satoshi's probably dead, something mm-hmm. like that. But like, mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of technical issues with the balance of value in a network like Bitcoin, but it was, it was fair in its distribution based on if you mind, you got the money. And that was it. There, there was a simple rule on how people got money. It just happened to be this kind of geometric declining series of, of inflation that overwhelmingly benefited the people who started it. So that's the question is what makes that fair apart from like just the kind of assertion that being first is fair as opposed to like a fair distribution is one that produces a good outcome, right? Where the people who, uh, where where uh, money, uh, resources are directed in a way that is productive for human thriving or that averts things like the climate emergency or whatever, right? Like there, there are a lot of axes on which to um, evaluate fairness. Um, and the, the people who are most vociferously argue for finders keepers, right? Like first one to get it, is the one who deserved it tend to be the people who got there first, right? Oh, yeah, 100%. They, you know, um, and there's generally an active erasure involved there too. Although I don't know if there is one in, in blockchain, but you know, it, it, like the people who won the land rushes uh, say that they own that land because they got there first and they ignore the fact that someone who lived there before was genocided so that they wouldn't be there anymore. Well, I think it's a big part of like, well, if, I would say in the earlier days, and this may be a good or bad thing, uh, the majority of the push for people who adopted the technology was heavily used as an ideological vehicle. So Bitcoin was an ideological vehicle to push the concepts that they were trying to push. And, the, and then mm-hmm. in, the, in the process of them becoming rich, in the process of using this vehicle, it it only emboldened their ideology. Like, look, this is right. It should be the right way. Look how rich I sure. am. Now I get to assert my influence on you and tell you that this is right. Now, I'm saying that the mechanism of distribution is fair in terms of how money gets inflated, but not the kind of meat space ideological vehicle pushing of now because I'm rich, this is right. What does pluralistic entail to you? Like, does that does it meet the like a certain baseline like threshold for which people can access opportunity is that where you're where you're coming from uh cory cory d i'm gonna call yeah. you cory d. 
it's hard not to it's hard not to just end up with like platitudes like from each according to their ability to each according to their needs yeah but um i, I think we can talk about things like uh, uh just just the ratio you know sort of the gini coefficient right the the ratio of the richest to the poorest um and then we can also look at the outcomes on quantitative measures like lifespan and nutritional access mm -hmm. and educational outcomes. And we can just say like a pluralistic distribution is one in which the Gini coefficient is low and in which... How um, low? Well, and then that would be the second part, right? In which it is low enough that you don't see people who have several multiples of what it would take to meet the basic human needs of shelter, food, education, you know, and, and um, the ability to, to raise a family. And then people have much less than that. A large number of people have much less than that. You know, you can allow for some, um, you know, moments of adjustment at the margin where someone loses their job and it takes them a while to find one and they slip through the cracks. But if there are a thousand people who are starving and one person who has a thousand times more food than they need, that would be inefficient. Um, if there are is one person starving and 999 people who have 1.01 times more food than they need, that's inefficient in a different way, right? That feels like that feels like uh, a system that's mostly working and that maybe needs a tweak, whereas the first one feels like a system where uh, for its stability must be derived from some form of coercion. Because why would a thousand people allow one person? to have a thousand times more food than they need while they starved, right? I agree with you. I call it the asshole index. It's like you're trying to make ways in which minimize the ability of an asshole to have dramatic influence over everyone else. Yeah. Or get to the point in a position where they can do something like that because those people exist and they want to try and do it. So you want to make systems that create friction for them to get there. I, I have yet to see any speculative activity favor non-assholes in the main and i would i would count blockchain among those things that that speculation seems to attract and reward assholes i agree with that i mean not not universally like there are definitely exceptions people who buy lottery tickets who are sweet and who do nice things with them the but trace like commas persona from silicon valley is there for a reason yeah i mean people so look if you if you think that the way you make the world better is by owning things instead of doing things then you, by definition, have a view of people who do things that they're suckers for doing things. Uh, hold on. I, I'm going to push back a little bit there. And I, we're kind of running out of time. I don't want to take too much sure. of your day. Uh, but like, we haven't talked about the books either. This is <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> like, okay, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say one thing and I'll, like, you can right. respond and then let's talk about the books. So like, yeah. uh, in my opinion, as someone, so if we're going to start off, Money is a proxy for power or work, yeah. right? Because more often than not, people will exchange their their hard their hard on work for money. So if you gain money, you can get people to work. And so when you get an an, an abundance of money, now I can handle my own needs and my family's needs and whatever else I want. And I still have an I still have more money. I can use that money to influence the things that I care about and make other people do the work that I I don't have the personal time to do. That's a that's more often than not what I would call like at least like the rationalization of the rich, right? 
That's what they're, sure. that's what they think in their heads. I want to have the influence impact on this world. And I have, a, 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 and I have a proxy of work. Therefore I'm going to distribute that work in a manner that I think is right. Or that even further benefits me, leave it up to whatever you the interpretation there, but that's generally the concept. And that makes sense. Like that's, that's a reasonable thing. But now you have regulations and kind of checks and balances to make sure that you have somewhat of an asset index. You can't do that. That's wrong. You can't have slave labor, things like that, right? That's right. where a lot of the regulation comes in to keep people from doing the things that they would consider work on behalf of them to be just inhumanely, just bad on, on a global, on, on a human scale. And that's kind of this balance you have to fit of like, how can I gather resources to then have an influence on the society around me. And as the more influences I have, the society around me gets larger. If it's but what small, if you don't need I, those material resources to have that sort of influence? Oh, Maybe is, that's is, the direction. It's going to be a forever argument of like, what do I have available to me? How do I gather it? And then how do I redistribute it in a manner that I see fit? So uh, I think that what's missing in that analysis is uh, as opposed to other ways of doing more than one person can do. So one way to do more than one than other people can do is to uh, bribe people to 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 do the parts that you don't have time to do. And intrinsic in the bribe is a coer is coercion, right? Because like, um, well, we see this playing out right now with the arguments about stimulus, right? Low aged workers who work unsafe and unpleasant jobs don't want to come back to work because they can survive without doing that unpleasant work. The way to make them come back to work is not by making the work more pleasant or better compensated. It's to take away the cushion that they have that allows them to go out there. There's that, so that's always going to be present in wage labor, right? There's always going to be um, an, an uneasy equilibrium between uh, bribery and coercion. Uh, and certainly, like the more coercion you have, the less bribery you need. Right. Like you can pay people lower wages if they starve. And if you don't have and like this is, you know, you, I don't need you to pay this. you if I can blackmail you. Like, right. Or I don't need to pay you if I can um, if instead of paying my workforce in aggregate a million dollars a year extra, I can make political contributions to the tune of half a million dollars a year to nerf unemployment benefits. So my workers are afraid of me firing them and then I can pay them less and I can pocket the, the difference, right? This, this, is, this is the kind of sociopathic economic rationality of homo economicus and Austrian economics, right? Like why would, you know, when you hear about um, public choice and regulatory capture, they imagine a person for whom that's that, the fact that you can do that means that you should, right? Otherwise you're not being economically rational. Um, there is another version of getting of being superhuman, right? Of doing more than one person can do, which is to which is moral suasion. Right? It's to solidarity. Like for example, I can convince the the two wonderful people I live with to sometimes do the dishes by doing the dishes myself, right? I neither have to pay them nor do I have to threaten them. I can just show them that it's fair for us to share the the work in the house, um, and in fact. One of the things as a parent that I have discovered, because that's one of the people I live with as a 13-year-old, one of the things that I've discovered is that all those uh, behavioral ec uh, economists and Adlerian psychologists who say that offering extrinsic reward to get your kid to do something that they should want to do intrinsically crowds out intrinsic motivation and makes your kid a dick, right? If you pay your kid to clean their room, 
as opposed to expecting them to clean their room because that's part of what your room that's part of the job that we all have in our house is we keep the house tidy and make sure that there isn't vermin because you've left your plates on the floor for three days then um then your kid will be a dick and expect to be paid for all the things that they should otherwise be doing in order to be a, a good part of your household right and that and like the way to avert that dickish behavior it, it, you know or correct for it in uh kind of neoclassical or, or austrian views is to then punish your kid for being a dick so first you make your kid a dick and then you punish them for being a <laughs> dick right and so this is like so you know this is like oh we tell people that they're homo economicus and if they can cheat if they can cheat they should you know and then we tell them that if we catch them cheating we'll punish them and so like you know if you if we catch you benefits cheats will be punished severely more severely than wage wage thieves for example which you know is a thing that we do right now and so another way of telling the story you just told is that if i am rich i won't have to convince people i'm right in order to get them to go along with my agenda i can threaten or bribe them to do what i want mm -hmm. and that is like that is you know so so cory robin the political scientist he says the difference between the right and the left is not anything more than the belief that's uh, that some people are born to be in charge of other people and the belief that uh no one is born to be in charge of other people and the thing that welds together every right-wing ideology whether it's dominionism which is uh christians should be in charge of the rest of the world or imperialism which is that america should be in charge of the rest of the world or white nationalism which is that white people should be in charge of the rest of the world or sexism or homophobia or whatever the thing that welds together each of these ideologies which are themselves like seemingly irreconcilable the one thing they all have in common is that they imagine plato's republic they imagine a, a born philosopher king who should sit at the top and they imagine a bunch of people who were destined to sit below and they imagine that if you were to reverse the order if you were to take someone who wasn't qualified to lead and make them a leader which is you know the argument against say affirmative action right you're taking incompetent people and putting them in positions of authority as opposed to nepotism where having you know a parent who can buy a building at yale gets you a yale degree which gets you a job at a bank which is a meritocracy <laughs> because you 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 had the intrinsic merit to emerge from the correct orifice um you know that that um uh that that this is what makes the world bad right if you put if you put the unworthy in positions of power instead of the god kings who lurk among us right the the rorks who 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 are there to start or the gulf gulches you know there to start our our utopian projects in which we all defer to the person who's obviously better than the rest of us that that's what you get and so intrinsic in the ideology that if i have money i can just make people do what i want instead of begging them or convincing them or showing them that they should do what i want uh is that what i want is better for other people even if they don't know it even if they don't agree even if they have to be coerced or bribed into doing it it's I a know, paternalistic is, view you're right and, and there's 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 two things here or like sorry I, I can't not say that money is easier and humans generally speaking are going to i guess i guess statistically speaking, are going to travel a path of least resistance. It's harder to convince someone or make them understand something. And I don't think anyone can argue that there is a distribution of mental capacity, whether it be as you age or just it's like genetics and your ability to have the predisposition to spend a lot of time thinking and work out that muscle. So people's capacity to understand complex topics is variable. And the, uh, the ridiculous okay. 
size of things that you need to understand is beyond any given human. So like we have domains of expertise because you can't know everything. Sure. And so you like take, for example, the difficulty it is to convince people to take a vaccine. That's probably better for them on a global scale. Yeah, no, I, I so I agree with what you're saying. I think that it's just multidimensional. Yeah, so it's, I think that it's, it's uh, a very subtle and complex scenario. Yeah, and money but, generally is a is a path of least resistance, and also, unfortunately, the most prone to manipulation. But but what I what I was going to say is that like, uh, for example, getting people to take vaccines is not just a matter of reasoning with them. Nor is it a matter of coercing them, nor is it a matter of bribing Maybe them. Maybe it's, it's also right a matter of empathizing with them, yeah. right? Agreed. And there are a lot of people who are really, really, really good at understanding systems, but not people. And wow. so, <laughs> yes, yeah, right? I mean, we know those people. We we may be those people, right? So, you know, like the the I mean, we talk about emotional intelligence and whatever, rational intelligence, so on. Obviously, it's hugely oversimplified, but there are... Um, in the same way that the ascent of man is a lie, that like squirrels are not less optimal monkeys who are less optimal apes who are less optimal humans, right? Mm -hmm. That what we talk about is just suitability to a, a time and a moment. There is no one who is optimal for all circumstances. There are people who have an optimal skill or an optimal perspective. And this is why ensemble problem solving tends to outperform over the long run authoritarians, uh, unitary problem solving, unitary problem solving, benevolent dictatorships work well, but they fail badly. Because if you're smart about five things and incredibly dumb about the sixth, and you get to make the call on all six of them, all the harm you do on point six might outweigh the, the benefit that you deploy in, in parts one through five. And my favorite example of this is Charles Koch, who, you know, is clearly brilliant, and very far sighted, right? So when he got his father's uh, hydrocarbon empire, it was it was not a big firm. It was a mid-sized firm amid a lot of other firms. And Koch um, had the uh, nous to understand that the thing that held back private firms was an unwillingness to consider investments that amortized over ten and twenty years. And so he invested in a lot of he was he had a he, was, he had an engineering degree. So he invested in a lot of automated processes that amortized over long timescales and grew the firm a thousandfold, not a thousand percent, but a, a thousand times over that period. And you can see that same patience in his political project, right? So, you know, we've all seen political dilettantes, rich people like Howard Schultz, right? Who just enter a political race and say like, I started Starbucks, you should listen to me. No one listens to them. They go back to, to owning coffee shops, right? Whereas Coke was like, the way to do this is to fund a bunch of dark money think tanks and to build up the slow patient network, fund academics, endow chairs, create magazines, whatever, do all of this for decades, right, in order to evince a change in the public. Now, I don't want to say I like any of this. This is all terrible stuff he did. But he was brilliant at being bad, right? He had a lot of illegitimate greatness. But, you know, for a person who's like signal virtue, right, the thing that differentiates him from everyone else, the thing he's a Six Sigma sport on is foresight and patience. This is a guy who's like completely lacking in any foresight or patience as, as befits climate change. When it comes to climate change, he's like the world's most motivated reasoner. He's like, well, you know, it snowed last week. How can the world be getting hotter? Hook, 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 right? Like he's, he is literally the stupidest person I know when it comes to long-term patient foresight 
and the climate where gores his ox. And so this is the problem with a benevolent dictatorship, because if you had someone who's so good at foresight and forward planning as Charles Koch, it would be tempting to say, all right, you're in charge of all of our forward planning. And then he comes along and he's like, uh, what climate? Right. And then the next thing you know, you're like (laughs) digging through rubble for canned goods and drinking your own fucking urine. You know, like this is the problem with a benevolent dictatorship is not how well it works. It's what happens when it fails. Can't argue there. (laughs) Sorry, I got a little worked up. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) Well, we have two like uh, we're going to ask two like our signature questions real quick. Short answers. And then we can talk about kind of the books, let people know what you're doing and what you're up to. Yeah, yeah, sure. So, uh, Jesse, start off first. All right, here we go. So my question is, is what you do actually difficult? And that, that, what that means can be however you interpret that. Yeah, I, a hundred percent. I would say that what I'm doing now is something that I took 20 years of practice to get good at. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I'm curious where you go with this one. You've answered it before, but you can answer it again in 10 words or less. Can you describe Bitcoin? Um, uh, goodness me! Not comprehensively, but I can ex- I can describe an element of That's it. Point. <laughs> uh, kind of a mixed bag. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> the, the whole point is to get someone to like find the nugget of like right. feeling that they have associated with the whole thing. Yeah, kind of a mixed bag. All right. Well, then let the, tell us, uh, tell our audience kind of what you're up to, where to go learn sure. more, how to, how to get a hold of you, et cetera. Yeah. So I got a couple of books out. Well, actually, I have four books out during the crisis. Um, so one was Attack Surface, which is the third little brother book. It's a book for adults. I really enjoyed stands it. Alone. Thank you, by the way. That was a great oh, book. Well, thank you. Yeah. And you don't have to read, you don't have to um, read the other two. You can read it on its own. It's, okay. uh, it's a book about, uh, oh, good. And so it's it's a book about a toolsmith who works for uh, big surveillance companies who has a moral reckoning with the work that she's been doing when her best friend is targeted by the same tools that she's been building uh, through racial justice struggles. Uh, the other book that came out was a reissue of the first two Little Brother books, which is Little Brother and Homeland. Uh, and most interestingly is it has this introduction by Ed Snowden. And if you've seen the Snowden documentary, you know that when he left Hong Kong, one of the 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 book that he took with him when he left Hong Kong was Homeland was the the second little brother book. So it was very kind of him to write that uh, intro. And it's a great intro. And then I, as I mentioned, in my introduction to myself, I have this book, Posey, the Monster Slayer, which is my first picture book. It's for four to six year olds. It's about a maker kid who every night drives her parents crazy by tearing apart all the toys in her room so that she can make field expedient monster hunting weapons, which keep them awake all night. And it's got lots of classic universal style monsters sort of chibied up for the for today's four to six year olds. Uh, And then the last one is a book called How to Destroy Surveillance Capitalism, which is really just a pamphlet. It's like a 37,000 word rebuttal to Shoshana Zuboff that theorizes the problems with big tech as not stemming from their mystical ability to change our minds using machine learning, but rather from monopoly and its problems. Uh, It's certainly a book that's become very timely in this moment as the FTC takes aim at at the tech platforms. And then I I wrote four books during the crisis, and they're all coming out in the next couple of years. So um, one that should be of some interest to your listeners is a book called Red Team Blues, which is a cyberpunk noir thriller heist novel about um, a blockchain heist. 
Uh, specifically, I'm very uh, interested to hear that. To read that one. Secure enclave heist. Yeah. I wonder how mad I'm going to be at the inaccuracies because I've got technical. <laughs> well, I but... use I used a notional secure enclave based cryptocurrency, and so it can't be inaccurate because it doesn't exist. Oh, perfect. Uh, <laughs> is, my my friend James D. McDonald once told me that if you're going to, he's a he's a gun guy. I am a Canadian, so by definition, I'm not a gun guy. But he said if you ever must write about a gun and you don't want gun people to come and make your life miserable, just put the word modified in front of it. <laughs> <laughs> so if someone pulls out their modified AK-47 and does something, gun nuts will tie themselves in knots figuring out the cleverest way that you could have possibly meant that. Whereas if you leave the word modified out, they will err on they the side of, of, of parsimony. <laughs> yeah, to find out why you were stupid for doing it. So it's, I have this cryptocurrency novel called Red Team Blues. And I have a post-Green New Deal uh, utopian environmental novel called um, The Lost Cause that as I said, is about Bitcoinism, uh, truth and reconciliation with white nationalist militias, and a 300-year project to relocate every coastal city in the world 20 kilometers inland. And um, I have a collection of short stories uh, set in the Little Brother universe that's very nearly done. Uh, and then finally, there's a book called The Shakedown that I co-wrote with an Australian eminent copyright scholar named Rebecca Giblin. And it's about non-copyright mechanisms uh, for increasing artistic uh, incomes, artistic financial fortunes, uh, premised on the idea that if you have a highly concentrated marketplace where there's only, say, three record labels, as we have, or four publishers, as we have, or one movie uh, theater chain, which we have, or four movie studios, or whatever, that giving artists more copyright is just giving those companies more copyright, that the companies will non-negotiably acquire everything the artist has been given by the state as a condition of reaching their audience. And that to the extent that you want to shift money from their side of the balance sheet onto the artist side of the balance sheet, you need to conceive of other mechanisms, including contracting limits, uh, transparency and accounting, uh, prohibiting uh, certain uh, commercial arrangements through antitrust law, uh, encouraging trade unions and other forms of collective bargaining, um, uh, lowering the bar barriers to certain kinds of legal, seeking certain kinds of legal redress and so on. It's a, it is a fun but technical book, right? It's, it's uh, not what they sometimes call a chapter 13 book, which is where there's 12 chapters of what's screwed up in the world and a 13th chapter of what you can do. Uh, <laughs> it, is in, it is instead a really detailed examination of certain practices that have emerged over the last 40 years that have materially harmed artists, even as they grew the industry, even as the industry grew and its net take to grew, um, and specific remedies that you can use to unwind those uh, that are all within our grasp. I will say after reading most of your work, or maybe all of the, all, all of the work that I've read from you, um, like, like radicalized, like, Every single thing that I read, I don't walk away being like, that was a fun read. It's more along the lines of like, that was an interesting concept and I'm going to have to sit on it for a while. Well, and I hope if you read Posey the Monster Slayer, you'll find it fun. That may be a bit different. I'll <laughs> save that for my son when he's ready. Like, <laughs> Yeah. Um, well, as always, Jesse, anything else? No, nothing to add. Nothing to add. All right. Very, so very wonderful interview. No, 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 <laughs> no. I, I enjoyed hearing uh, both of you guys discussing different, you know, Different, your different perspectives on the space you know it's kind of it's interesting hearing like in group versus out group macroscopic versus like in group kind of more focused on it's got to be careful yeah. to not sit in the echo chamber too long sure. yeah that's 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 yeah i mean that's why i talk to bitcoin people because you know on, there's this venn diagram of like 
decentralization and uh, techno technological focus on social problems uh, on one side and modern monetary theory, uh, loose money spending, uh, viewing money as, uh, as exogenous, uh, and and as a means for state democratically accountable states to provision themselves on the other side, and the crossover is here, right? And like I'm the I'm the thing in the crossover there, and so I I try to I try to stay abreast of it because I know that there is um, simmering hostility between those two camps, uh, but I also can understand the way in which they uh, overlap. Mm -hmm. I think it's important to continue to explore those. So I hope that you'll continue mm -hmm. to come back on and also talk with uh, many, many of the other podcasts that are out there. Are you working in a job that sucks bowels? Does your job suck and ergo your life? Do you want to change that? Because your life is sucking? Join the TBP Slack. Get a better job. 